T-Mobile has invested billions to light up America's largest 5G network from big cities to small towns, including right here in yours. And great coverage is just the beginning. Right now, families and small businesses can save up to 20% versus AT&T and Verizon when they switch. Visit your local T-Mobile store today. Plan savings with three lines of T-Mobile essentials versus comparable available plans. Plan features and taxes and fees may vary. We get it. Attention spans just aren't what they used to be. Heads in social media and eyes on Netflix. But what do people do with their ears? Well, for one... They're listening to audio. Americans spend 4.4 hours with audio every day. Oh, and you want the proof? Well, you just sat through this ad that's now approaching 30 seconds. What could you say to a potential customer in 30 seconds? Let Odyssey put together a media plan tailor-made for your unique marketing needs. Advertise with Odyssey. Visit ads.odyssey.com. Magician and escape artist Harry Houdini might be one of the most famous people of the last 125 years. And that last time he was here in Detroit, he never left. At least, not alive. A famous magician has found one cell from which there is no outlet. The jailer beckoned at 1.26 p.m. Sunday. The door was closed, the bolt thrown. Harry Houdini was dead. Houdini's death on Halloween is legendary in Michigan. But why does our collective memory get so much of his story wrong? This is the Spooky J. I'm Zach Clark. The story of Harry Houdini's death is one we'd wanted to do in last year's Spooky J series, but it was just too dense to roll out the way we wanted to. But we were not going to let that happen this year. Annie, we've done a lot of these episodes now, and most of them, in fact, all of them until this point, have been about places, right? But this episode is about a person, and I will be the first to admit I am not that familiar with vaudeville. I don't know much about it. But like most people, I am familiar with its biggest star, Harry Houdini. It's pretty hard at this point to not have heard of Harry Houdini, whether you know him as the person, the magician, the stuntman, or you just know the term Houdini, which has become sort of synonymous with disappearing or getting yourself out of some sort of a entanglement or magic or whatever. Everybody in the English-speaking world knows his name. And you'll notice, too, if you listen to the news and television shows, people use Houdini's name not necessarily referring to him, but referring to the concept of somebody who can escape from anything or do something miraculous. And it's almost 100 years since he passed away. But his name is literally part of our language, and that's the key, and that's why he'll stay famous for a very long time. Houdini is like Kleenex, and everybody else is tissue paper. Yeah. How did he get there? Well, his performances were exceptionally emotional. He pitted himself against seemingly all challenges, which is really a situation where the audience roots for you. It's not a typical magic show. You don't really root for the magician. You don't want him to fail, but you don't really have to root for him either. And it was so emotionally charged that many nights when he escaped, the audience rushed the stage and picked him up and carried him around on their shoulders. He's kind of like an original rock star. Yeah. <laughs> he was. He was really the first really superstar. Bill Kalush wrote The Secret Life of Houdini, The Making of America's First Superhero, which we found is basically the defining book on Houdini. And the fun part for us was Bill is a native Michigander. Bill came to us via the American Museum of Magic, which is actually in Marshall, Michigan. Another wonderful thing that we learned about during the process of making this episode. And the book spans 
everything about Houdini, you know, from his death in Detroit, which we're focusing on for this episode, and, you know, the course of his entire life. And it was just really interesting, and it, it gave me this whole new appreciation of Harry Houdini as a person, but also his story and all of the things that he did during the course of his career. It's pretty fascinating. And so we were lucky enough to, again, use this episode as a way to learn about some really interesting history. And part of that history was Houdini's long uh, connection with Detroit. And the more digging you do, Houdini has really strong Michigan and Detroit ties. We talked to Gail Offen and John Milan for the Cadju episode, and they were also well-versed on Houdini from their book, Michigan Haunts, Public Places, Eerie Spaces. Houdini came to Detroit quite a bit. He came to Detroit as early as 1906 when he did that famous Belle Isle Bridge stunt where he jumped off. And if you've seen the movie with Tony Curtis, there's that dramatic scene where he breaks through the ice, although there really is conflicting reports about whether there was ice on the river that day. Either way, you know, it was pretty cold and he was chained and he came to the surface. So that's where he really started coming to Detroit. And this is where his career, unfortunately, ended on October 31st, 1926. What was it about the city of Detroit that drew Houdini? I mean, I know at the time it would have been a major city of industry. There would have been a lot of people there, and I'm assuming people would have had some disposable income. But I wonder if there was something more that Houdini saw or liked about Detroit. Well, it was an important stop on the vaudeville circuit. There were some important theaters in Detroit at the time, especially on the Monroe block. So uh, if he were trying to hit the major cities, he certainly would have hit Detroit. You mentioned that connection to Detroit and you mentioned his death. Well, Houdini's connection to Detroit is strongly tied to his performances, Annie. It was the frequency. It was the theatrics of the Belle Isle Bridge jump. But his strongest connection to Detroit, it's rather unfortunate. This is where he died and to boot it was on Halloween. A lot of people don't realize that. And honestly, up until I think last year, I'm not sure I knew that. He's 52 years old at this point, and he'd been challenging people to punch him in the abdomen. There were a lot of death threats. There were things that happened to him that looked consistent with poisoning, but I don't actually think any of those things happened. I think what really happened was he had developed a case of appendicitis, which was very common back then. He gets these punches, and a day or so later, he's feeling pain in his abdomen. He already had a 102-degree fever by the time he got to Detroit. And he went on stage anyway. He was late that night. He did some magic, and it was pretty poorly done. The audience could tell things were off. And afterward, they insisted he go to Grace Hospital. And for some reason, they didn't do the surgery till the following afternoon. And it had ruptured, and it was a mess. And they thought they were going to be able to clean it up, and maybe there was some possibility that uh, he could survive it. But he lingered on for seven days passed away famously on Halloween at 1.26 p.m. We were able to dig in a little bit deeper and not only find out about the events leading up to his death, you know, they're very famous events, at least the retelling of the story. Everybody kind of knows the punch in the stomach. But we were able to kind of get into that a little bit further and realize exactly what did lead to his death and then up to the days of his passing in Detroit on Halloween. One of the things about Houdini and the haunted stories is that they pop up across the city of Detroit. It's not tied to just one place. And you and I went on kind of a Harry Houdini field trip. The most pervasive story seems to be the murkiest story, at least to me. What you often hear is that Houdini haunts the majestic. But based on our research, we're not saying it's impossible, but it seems unlikely because of a couple of errors that people have in telling this story. 
I think we're at the spot that is the most confused when it comes to Houdini. We're at the Majestic Theater, and if you talk to people about the ghost of Houdini and things like that, they often talk about the Majestic. There's been rumors that people have seen Houdini walking around the Majestic Theater. So he might be gone, but people still claim to see a spirit. But we've learned it's just not right. Yeah, we thought initially that his final performance was at the Majestic before he died several days later on Halloween in Detroit. But it wasn't. It was at the Garrick Theater, which no longer exists. He did, I believe, perform at the Majestic, though. So some people still think that his spirit lurks around the building. Some people have reported seeing and hearing different things around the building through the years. But there's no really telling if that's supposed to be Houdini or not. There are a lot of errors around Houdini's death and even things that when you cross-reference a bunch of different sources, there still isn't any definitive answer on a few different things from his cause of death to the actual punch and who was responsible for that. His final show, which a lot of people think was at the Majestic, leading to those rumors about him haunting the place, which was actually at the Garrick Theater, which doesn't exist anymore. So there's a lot of discrepancies about Houdini's passing, and we were able to kind of get into some of that at least and try to figure out if we could get and build a comprehensive look at what happened from when he received that punch in the stomach in Montreal up until when he was feeling very, very sick on his way to Detroit until he was hospitalized in Detroit and had played his final show right before that and then his passing several days later. So, I mean, there's sort of a series of events and a lot of misconceptions happened throughout that series. Houdini was an escape artist, Annie, and one of the things he liked to escape out of was a coffin. The legend goes that when he died, that's where he was put and sent off to New York in his prop coffin. To disclaimer this, we found this in several different sources. We can't 100% confirm if it's true, but a lot of people say the story goes that after he was taken to the funeral home in the cast corridor and then was prepared to be put on a train taken back to New York, he had this prop coffin that was part of his stage show. And obviously it would have been probably custom built to fit him and his size. And because they had that on hand, the legend says that's what they used to transport him back to New York. That's it's rather dark, but it does make a lot of sense. And so that was one of just like the many sort of eerie details of the story that popped up as we were researching it. And that would explain why we see his ghost, because, of course, out of that coffin, what could he do? Escape. <laughs> I wouldn't put it past him, honestly. It is Houdini, after all. One of the tricks for us in this episode, Annie, was that we had to go to places that don't exist anymore. The Garrick Theater doesn't exist. That's an alley now. We don't think the Grace Hospital building where Houdini died exists either. There is part of it there on the DMC campus, but we're not sure where he was specifically. But the funeral home where he was taken, that still stands. And as one would assume, people have seen Houdini there. Yeah, it was interesting. A lot of the places that we toured around as part of our little Houdini final days tour were in the cast corridor. So we were able to kind of make our rounds there to the places that are still standing, to the places that are not anymore, and just looking at the different intersections. But yes, that's correct. The one possibly most important piece of history that still stands is that funeral home, which was the W.R. Hamilton and Company funeral home. And it was a funeral home for many, many years. And eventually it became, I think it operated as a punk club, actually, for several years as like a little venue, which is very fitting for the cast corridor, and then eventually became a music school. And so that's kind of where the story picks up. So we've crossed Woodward. We're in the cast corridor now. We're on the corner of Cass and Alexandrine. We're at the funeral home that Houdini was taken to after he died. This is where he was embalmed. 
this building, it appears at one point after this was a funeral home, this was a, a music and art type school, and we heard a story that connects those two things. In Detroit, we heard that the place that's still on cast, it was a music school. We've heard accounts of people that took lessons there, receptionists would see his spirit, you know, walking around in the music school. And there was a receptionist that worked there for many years. Her name was Juanita Hammond. And I believe that she had worked there even before they had transferred to that building in the Cass Corridor. So she was like a figure of this music school. One evening, Hammond says she was there by herself. She was finishing up some work. It happened to be Halloween. And she felt like some cold around her, some cold air. She looked up and she claims that she saw Harry Houdini standing in her office. And people have been trying to summon that and experience that since his death. And uh, Hammond believes that that's what she saw. And so every single year on Halloween, when she was there in her office, she kind of expected that he might appear again. I'm not sure that he ever did. She lived to be, I believe, past 100 and told the story. And then there's some rumors about him potentially haunting that place as well. So there's his connection to the Garrick Theater. There's the Majestic Theater. There's all these different locations throughout Detroit that people have thought and claimed to see Houdini's spirit. For us, this story actually starts with a seance, a seance that we thought happened in Detroit, that we thought started in Detroit. But in learning more about this seance, it turns into just a really, really sad story, at least on the outset. And it involves the guy that created Sherlock Holmes. Yeah, this was a strange twist. And again, there's so much to learn about Harry Houdini. And it's incredibly so much, dense. There's so much to know. And the thing is about it is that all of it is interesting. <laughs> yes. That's one of the things we found in this story is that if this wasn't like a spooky story, it would still be awesome. It's incredible. You could focus on multiple different parts of Houdini's life, from his relationship with his wife, Bess, which was a beautiful story. He was very close with his mother, and that was very formative in her life and in her death. Those things kind of formed him. Of course, his life as a magician and a stuntman. And then there was this whole entire portion of his life that he spent the later portion of his career trying to debunk the spiritualists or people that were essentially fake mediums. Houdini wanted to be a believer really badly. And when his mother died, it really gutted him. And he was hoping to be able to connect with her. I think that he knew that he was in a vulnerable place and he was starting to realize that a lot of this was not legit. And he wanted to prevent other people from experiencing the same kind of disappointment that maybe he experienced when he was trying to connect with his mother. And so he spent a lot of years up until his death kind of myth-busting these fake mediums, and it angered a lot of people, and it caused him to end up having a lot of enemies. Yeah, and I mean, the irony of this whole thing is that Houdini was trying to bust these people that were tricking people, but ultimately, his wife gets tricked by Sir Arthur Conan Doyle. When Houdini died, Sir Arthur Conan Doyle, who had been a friend earlier, who was a big proponent of spiritualism, had become an enemy because Houdini attacked him. Doyle didn't like that, so they didn't speak for years. And almost immediately after Houdini's passing, Doyle starts writing to Houdini's wife, Bess. It starts out with just condolences, etc., but then he starts ingratiating himself, and pretty soon he's got spiritualists coming to her to have a seance, and they convince her to have a seance, and they convince her that Houdini had come back. And what Doyle's motive was was to show that he was right all along, that Houdini would prove that he was wrong about the communication by coming back himself. And she, she admitted that she'd been contacted by Houdini, and it was a big newspaper story, and then she realized she'd been duped. 
and she was practically suicidal at that point. The seances we thought were held every year in Detroit following his passing, we found out that also wasn't true, though they have held them in Detroit through the years. And as far as I can tell, and as we talked to Bill about this too, I'm not even sure 100% if people hold these seances expecting him to come through, even though, again, that would be very cool and everybody would welcome that. It's just tradition. It's more of a tradition that people, magicians, people in that community hold every year in commemoration of Houdini's passing and probably as a way to celebrate Halloween. I know that the American Museum of Magic in Marshall held a seance in his honor several years ago. Um, And so it's a tradition that carries on. And I think it's just a way to memorialize Harry Houdini and everything that he did for performers, people in the performing arts. So... On Halloween, are we going to bust out the Ouija board and see if we can't have a chat? You know I'm not. I stay far away from the Ouija boards. I'm good on that. I like the haunted stuff, but I'm not, I don't need to summon anybody. Today's big thanks go out to Bill Kalush, Gail Offen, John Milan, and of course, Annie Scaramazzino. Check out www.jnewsradio.com for the top local news stories on demand 24-7. Do you want that Daily J delivered right to you? Well, all you have to do is text WWJ to 20357 and you'll get it instantly. Message and data rates may apply. I'm Zach Clark, and this is the Spooky J. Thanks for listening. It's Halloween. We really need new phones. T-Mobile will cover the cost of four amazing new iPhone 15s. And each line is only $25 a month. New iPhone 15s? It's better over here. Only at T-Mobile get four iPhone 15s on us and four lines for $25 per line per month with eligible trade-in when you switch. Minimum of four lines for $25 per line per month with auto-pay discount using debit or bank account. $5 more per line without auto-pay, plus taxes and fees. Phone fee at 24 monthly bill credits for all well qualified customers. Contact us before canceling account to continue bill credits or credit stop and balance on required finance agreement due. $35 per line connection charge applies. See T-Mobile.com. We get it. Attention spans just aren't what they used to be. Heads in social media and eyes on Netflix. But what do people do with their ears? Well, for one, they're listening to audio. Americans spend 4.4 hours with audio every day. Oh, and you want the proof? Well, you just sat through this ad that's now approaching 30 seconds. What could you say to a potential customer in 30 seconds? Let Odyssey put together a media plan tailor-made for your unique marketing needs. Advertise with Odyssey. Visit ads.odyssey.com.